Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 239, recorded June 23rd. It's almost end of June. Wow. Uh, 2021. I am Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I am Nick Moore. Uh, welcome, Nick. Thanks for joining the show. Before we jump in, what? tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Uh, so as I said, Nick Moore, um, I'm based out of Ohio and I work as a data engineer at Trimble Transportation. Uh, it's a software company aiming to like revolutionize the way we supply the world and like simplify and connect like the world supply chain. Like it wants to make it easier to move goods and freight all around the world. Um, I'm also the co-organizer of, of Clipi, which is Cleveland's Python meetup group. Thank you, Michael, for sharing it up on the screen. Uh, so, yeah, that's a bit about me. Nice. I enjoyed Cleveland when we were there for PyCon. Yeah, I think I met you guys there. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I think you guys were in the JetBrains. Um, that's right. We were. Yeah, it was really great to be in Cleveland for a couple of years. And I guess we just completely missed Pittsburgh. But they're going to get another, another round out of here uh, as a, a redo, which is cool from COVID. I got a chance yeah. to speak at the Cleveland uh, Python meetup and I talked about Talked about memory, was that right? Yeah, you talked about um, how Python manages memory was like a really cool deep dive into <laughs> Yeah, thanks. That was super fun for having me. Now it's good to have you on our show. Yeah. So was, was that on purpose? Did you make a joke that you couldn't remember what the talk was about? No, I, <laughs> I know how my brain might store the memory of what I spoke about, but I just, it could have been that or async and I wasn't 100% sure which one it was. <laughs> we did talk about async too, though. Cool. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Speaking of async, Brian, yeah, async databases so, tell us about it. Well, this is um, uh, or object relational mappers also. Um, so we have got Ormar, which is a a an async mini ORM for Python, which supports Postgres, MySQL, and SQLite. Um, this was uh, a suggestion sent to, a suggestion sent to us by John Hagen. So thanks, John, for sending this in. Um, and I actually, I haven't played with this a lot. I was looking around. It looks pretty neat. But I'm going to quote uh, John here. He says, it's a really cool ORM that combines Pydantic models and SQL models into a single definition. Um, what is great about this is it can be used to reduce the repetitive duplication between the models uh, for an ORM and the Pydantic models for fat, that fast API needs to describe serialization. So I guess you do have to specify that twice normally. Um yeah, normally what you do is you would have the, the data model, the classes that do the exchange on the API level. So those would probably be pedantic, but maybe then you have a something like a SQL alchemy model. And then somewhere in the middle, you've got to copy the SQL alchemy data over to the pedantic model, send out over fast API, and you get it back. Then you've got to copy that from fast API and pedantic back into SQL alchemy. And because SQL alchemy types are not really meant to be transfer on the wire, you don't get the open API documentation that you get from Pydantic integration and all those sorts of things. So that's normally what happens. But if your database model can also be a Pydantic model, then you don't do that back and forth. Yeah, and anytime you've got duplication, it's like that dry issue of just, you're going to mess it up sometime. It's going to be wrong. Well, and I think that's why like SQL, um, SQL Alchemy, I think in version 1.4, they've been They've been playing around with a lot of ideas on how to integrate like data, not pedantic, but uh, data classes and like the um, ORM style um, base uh, models. Oh, there are yeah. like four different like propositions of how that should be done, but it's not yet perfect. So I think that's something that this, it looks like they could learn from Omar here. 
or at least yeah, um, it's a good to have these sort of experiments going on for all everybody to look around and see how do we how do we move forward so that we can do this cleanly yeah the so. one thing i will say is that with all of these orms i don't know why they never they never give some love to sql server i always see postgres mysql yeah. and sqlite but like sql server is pretty cool too where is <laughs> where is the support for that what's what's sql server so that's like microsoft's uh, you know what fair point <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it really matters what audience you're addressing, Nick. Right. So if you're talking startups and uh, a lot of the open source crowd, yeah, it's all Postgres. Or you know, if you're talking to Michael, it's all MongoDB, right? But <laughs> if you're talking to enterprises, boy, oh boy, do a big bunch of those enterprises run on the Microsoft stack, uh, yeah. Windows, Windows servers, um, Microsoft SQL Server. And that's a non-trivial amount of the the use cases for these things. So I, I agree that yeah, it should yeah. get some attention, even if it's not you know, necessarily the one that the maintainers or many of the people yeah. are, are like most keen to use. Yeah, and I um, I agree. It was a joke, but anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of the things I wanted to point out that John mentioned is that um, that uh, one of the benefits of Ormar is uh, there's a quick start specifically for fast API. So you can look at the documentation and there's a, Fast API quick start on how to uh, how to get this running with Fast API. So. What an interesting combination of descriptors from the ORM class side and Pydantic models you get here. So for for this we have uh, like the Pydantic model base type of thing. We've got the the columns specified with type information that Pydantic would use, but then you set them to things like an integer column that's a primary key or a string that has a max length setting and things like that. Yeah, it's like the worst of every world, but <laughs> but it's better than repeating stuff, right? So yeah, interesting. So. Yeah, yeah, I think it's pretty good. And Nick, you mentioned SQL Alchemy and data classes. Pydantic also has some integration for working with data classes as well. So maybe there's a way to bridge those things across for like Fast API and similar situations as well. I, I haven't tried that, but it's it's possible. Yeah, let's see. Out there in the live stream, we've got Sam Morley. Hey, Sam. Says, this looks a lot like a Django ORM. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it it really does. And then Dean is hoping that we'll get some support for a very important database, <laughs> AccessDB. That and, um, oh gosh, what was it? DB2 and a couple of yeah, the others. Oh, yeah, there's some really it. important ones that we're, we might be forgetting, but I, I think it's going to be okay. Oh, man. Access, that gives me PTSD from college. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. All right. Well, speaking of people who might be getting uh, some trauma. Let's talk about no module named. No module named.com, in fact. It's it's now its own website. It you used to think of it as like an error, and now it's actually a, a service. So error explanations of a service, I guess is what you would call it. Hmm. All right. So Gareth Dune pointed out that there's this website called No Module Named. And it looks super plain. And I went to him like, what is this? <laughs> it has 3,626 packages and, oh my goodness, like 2 million modules or something like that. And it has 151,000 package install guidelines. So for example, what if I'm working with HTTPX and I get the message that says, Python error, no module named HTTPX, right? This is what you would have if you wrote import HTTPX and you went and tried to run it, but you were new and you didn't realize there were external dependencies or that HTTPX wasn't built into the standard library you would get that error, right? Yeah. So this tells you how to fix it. It says, oh, this is probably because you don't have the package HTTPX. 
Let's see if I can go something like fast api.responses. Is that a thing? And what will it tell me if I tried? Oh, no such module. Yeah. But so uh, NumPy, for example, it'll give you a lot of these and it'll tell you um, this is probably because you don't have the package NumPy or NumPy MIPS 64 installed. So that's what I was looking for is if it would sort of show like, well, the package name is not exactly what you're looking for. So maybe BS4, right? Sometimes there's these modules that, yeah. So for example, if I say BS4, it'll say, oh, it's because you don't have, if you have the error, no module name BS4, it's because you don't have beautiful super four installed, right? So it's more than just like uh, duh, pip install the thing that there's no module of. It tries to help a little bit more with understanding that. And it tells you how to get the latest version. It tells you how to install it. So yeah. And there's even a related article. <laughs> Extremely beautiful, like SEO on that with, um, with, with people just Googling error messages as well. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, Garrett Dunn, thank you so much for sending that in. It's simple, but you know, these kinds of things can help people who are new and are getting in. And I think one of the powers of Python is we have people coming from all these different backgrounds and experiences and they are not all computer science people that know about package managers and like love that they're just like oh i know that i can do cool i can like load this file and make a picture out of it that i need to work on but i get this stupid no module name this what is this right and then they can this you know these kinds of things can help yeah well, i'm trying to teach my 11 year old some programming and we started with packaging yeah we didn't i <laughs> know <laughs> you started with virtual environments and then packaging <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, but brian i thought you would have started with testing first They'll always test first yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think this is like a really this is like a really cool project i find it super useful when um working on projects related to um, guis like um Qt or um or phoenix no no wx python because like those packages come with so many um underlying dependencies and sometimes you might miss one or might miss something that like is an os dependency that you don't know i feel like this could help you out i know i've run through this a few times where like i'm using uh like a package that is built on top of Qt, but then it tells me you don't have pyqt gt pyqt five right exactly well i i I like that i think you probably already mentioned this but the um that the the error message is the module not found that's often not the same. It's not the same name as the thing you yeah. pip install. So, <clears throat> yeah, like that. one that drives me crazy is date util. I love date util. I think it's like magic for the pain of parsing dates, but that's not what you install. You install Python underscore date util, right? And so there's yes. just, it's those situations where you're like, why is there no date util? I pip install date util and then it's not even the right thing. Or, you know, it's, it's just, uh, yeah, I think it's helpful to sort of put those things together for people who are new. Yeah. And for people doing new packages, don't do this if you can. Uh, even <laughs> if you have the perfect name for your package, maybe come up with something else that you can actually, it's available on PyPI. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, Nick, you got the next one, right? Yep, um, I got the next one. So I was uh, looking through Jupyter. So I'm like, as I said, as a data engineer, I often use um, Jupyter for like data wrangling and just trying out how to like, clean up some kind of data before I actually do the actual cleaning in our data pipeline. And so I stumbled, I, I got a new iPad and I was, I went, I went to be like tinkering around with like Python code and I was like researching into how to do that. And I stumbled across Jupyter Lite and I was like, okay, cool, Jupyter Lite, but sometimes I'm not gonna always 
going, always going to be connected to internet using my iPad. And then I look deeper into it and it's a, a Jupyter distribution that runs entirely in the browser and is like built from the ground up using Jupyter lab components and extensions. And oh, that's cool. And the, and the kernels that are available are like in the browser. So like there's a Python kernel that is like in the browser and it's built using PyIodide. That was like really cool to see. And there's also like a, um, I think there is a, where is it? In the user guide, there are other kernels such as, uh, yeah, JavaScript and P5.js, which I think is like a graphics library to build like things on Canvas. But it was really cool to see like it supports Python 3.8 and uh, you get like start session, you can run Python code, Python completion, which is really cool. It's interesting, they call the um, the kernel PyOlite. Um, PyOlite based on PyIodide. <laughs> yeah, based on PyIodide. And this is, I pulled it on, this is how it looks like, and it looks pretty cool. So it also supports, right, I think for now, it supports Altair and, uh, what about it again? Uh, Mat I think Matplotlib as well, I think, yeah. Altair, uh, Matplotlib. And so, like, open up this Altair notebook um it, it even has something called micropip which is like uh i i don't know what this means but <laughs> if you're it, i think it means that it's uh like a is a package manager but for the browser for python which is interesting oh and it's it's asynchronous because it's javascript basically right so it's right. a wait micropip install like jinja to or altair or something like that how interesting that's very cool i think um it also Everything that you download uh, and everything that uh, all the data that you like load up, it's being stored in the browsers like local storage or some other, um, I don't know, index DB. So it's like self-contained. The only thing I noticed is that right now it's not, um, it's not, what was the word here, um, a, a PWA. So it's yes, like, I was just thinking it would be fantastic if that was a progressive web app and then right. you could just have it in yeah, mostly like, offline mode yeah edge does a great job with pwas and every time it detects like a manifest or json it will show you do you want to install this app and i would just love to have like just click install and then have jupiter light wherever i go or load it up on my ipad and then disconnect and still be tinkering around with what i want this is all browser based so that's really cool uh i'm not gonna run any of these but i, I encourage everybody to check this out it's pretty cool yeah, yeah, this is really cool. I do the same thing with, I use Brave. And so I have like a, a YouTube app installed on my Mac and I've got um, a Twitter app installed at all as progressive web apps so that you can just launch them. I do wish Firefox supported that. Firefox people, if you're listening, bring back the progressive web app. We all need this. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. What are some of the other notebooks in there that look cool? Um, we are these like demo ones or did you? Yeah, there's these? a demo one. So okay. there are the, there's, there's a P5 JS one. There's the Altair one. I don't know what Folium is. Um, there's the interactive widgets, which is cool. So it still uses Jupyter's uh, IPython I notebook widgets. Matplotlib. Um, mm -hmm. um, oh, Plotly as well. Um, nice. Cool. And Plotly, cool. And so this is the de facto like PyoLite one. So it supports Matplotlib, uh, Matla, Pandas. That's cool. And so it like, supports LaTeX as well. Yeah, it's LaTeX. Really cool. And so like, as I was saying before, PyoDide is, uh, what is it? Is a like a implementation of Python um, 
on the browser. Actually, implementation of Python is on the computing stack on the browser. So I think things like Pandas, NumPy, SciPy, Scikit-Learn are already like available. It's within the PyODI ecosystem, so you don't have to. Yeah, pick- I, I had the guys behind it. You know, Firefox and Mozilla were behind it originally, at least, and. I had them on Talk Python. I believe it's WebAssembly based. I think what they did is they took all these major visualization libraries and things like Pandas and NumPy and compiled them all into a Python plus those WebAssembly thing that runs in the browser instead of a JavaScript version, which is pretty awesome. Oh, even SymPy. Yeah, the symbolic output, like the got the the math symbol integral of the square root of one over x dx. Uh, beautiful. Yeah. I wonder if you get hand calcs on it. Oh yeah. <laughs> awesome. Cool. All right. Well, that's a really good one. I, I love it. All the data scientists out there can definitely enjoy that. Yeah. Cool. What do we got next? I think you're up next. Oh, right. Okay. Um, <laughs> so next we've got more um, plotting, maybe. Yeah, more plotting. So this is um uh this is a long title. Basically it's lots of plots. Um they're there's eight popular graphs made uh, with pandas, matplotlib, seaborn, and plotly express. And I, one of the things I've seen a lot of uh, like uh, articles and stuff talking about how to do different plots in in one or one or more of these. And a lot of them are a lot of the articles, and rightly so, are focused on something cool you can do with one library that you can't do with others. And and like I've seen seaborn ones like that, and that's great. What I like about this article is it's. Um, it's like, well, let's just take uh, these these uh, these different pandas plotting and matplotlib, seaborn, plotly express, and do the same plot. Let's do the let's do something they can all do, and so that's what this article does. It does um, a, a whole list. You got line normal line charts, uh, grouped bar charts, stacked bars, pies, a whole bunch of things, and histograms, and then um, you can just compare to see what it looks like before you try, and you know, for one, it's got like, you know, the output, what, what are the, what do the graphs look like, which is important, but also, um, it's just, it's a fairly simple article. It's talking about what the plots look like, but also how do you make them? What's the, it's a, it's in a notebook viewer, Jupyter notebook viewer, and it, uh, shows you, you know, what's the code look like to get these plots set up. And that's a, I think that's a big part of choosing your plotting library is looking at the API <laughs> to see what kind of API looks comfortable to you. So. Yeah, I, I've got to write this code. Will I be able to remember this? Yeah. <laughs> or, will, or will it be like regular expressions that I learn it every time I use it? Yeah, or if you get stuck with one and you want to switch to other to sort of look at what the deltas are. I, I like these side-by-side uh, apples-to-apples comparison sort of articles. So I think this is good for choosing a, a, the simple parts of plotting. But some of the comparisons are sort of funny because like the bar charts just kind of all look the same. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait, that one's color. orange versus <laughs> orange and blue versus green and blue it's not all the same uh yeah but you get down yeah, into the, nice some one. some of the fancy ones and and they uh yeah they do look great some of the uh my area charts um yeah that one looks great what's that uh plotly express area charts look awesome so. yeah the area charts look good and what's Nick, i didn't know world. what a donut chart was a donut oh, chart yeah. looks like pie chart with a hole in it yep why do people use that what's i don't know i think it's because of like with the uh, pie charts, the sectors are kind of, it's kind of, sometimes it can be hard to see like how much width, no, like, yeah, the circumference of like uh, this sector. So with the donut chart, it kind of makes it easier to see like, okay, this takes like all of this. It's just a visual thing to be honest. Yeah. Okay, cool. Nick, this is your world. What do you think? 
I think this is really cool, but to be honest, all of these APIs don't compare to the grammar of graphics from R. And so I usually use, I, I, if I am going to do graphics in Python, I would prefer to use something that like conforms to the grammar of graphics because to me, that's kind of, you know how like Python has the, um, the import this and it's all philosophy how you write Python. The grammar of graphics like has that. So it has like, gives you these like, sentences so to speak to build graphics and i like that makes so much sense in my head so like for graph for graphing libraries it's either altair or ggplot and, and there is like a python port of ggplot uh, of ggplot that's pretty good but i think altair is like the iconic uh, de facto version that i've used that's really nice but all the other ones that make me have to do like uh like uh like um do these method calls on an object, just, I can't, I can't remember it. I'll have to come back to something like this. So how do you yeah. use it again in Matlab? Are you using Seaborn? I really like the fact that they have, like Seaborn has a lot of one-liners uh, to like do simple charts in one line, which is great. Unlike with the grammar graphics, right? It still makes you have to build everything out. But um, if I'm building something really custom or I am just building something that I have, I want to have complete control over. The grammar graphics just gives me a better way of like remembering what to do compared to having to remember all this API, uh, all this API, all these method API calls. Well, I mean, the the author uh, Dylan Castillo uh, says, "Let me know what you think." So maybe one, we could give him some feedback to, yeah. to add add Altair and and a couple others. So, oh yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, <laughs> Dean also has some thoughts out there, right? Oh, Seaborn and Pandas use Matplotlib in the back end, so you can do everything they can do with Matplotlib. Okay, maybe harder, but not impossible. And also, that's probably why they look all the same. <laughs> <laughs> they are the same. Turtles all the way down. And he also says, remember kids, almost every command in Matplotlib returns the object it charts. That's the start of OOP object-oriented plotting. All right, right on. Oop, and it'd be two Ps. Ob- oop, oop, oop. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you, Brian, you got to talk about databases. So I'm going to talk about databases too. <laughs> but my databases are going to be smaller and in memory and embedded, but also about MongoDB. So there's this really cool one uh, created by David Latwi uh, called MontyDB. So it's a uh, Monty, it's a Mongo, MongoDB tinyified. So it's MongoDB implemented in Python, and you can have it in process, kind of like SQLite, I believe. We've covered a couple of these libraries that are starting to show up that let you do sort of embedded MongoDB, which I think is really neat. So it's inspired by TinyDB um, and its extension TinyMongo. So the way you work with it, super simple. You just import the Monty client. And if you wanted to go crazy, you could say as Mongo client and make it basically the same. And then you can give it connection strings like colon memory colon. That should look familiar from something like SQLite. And then you can insert data to it, do all sorts of things and do queries against it, uh, run like the MongoDB query syntax against it, and you get the responses back, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, It's certainly interesting for testing. If you told it to use a file storage, it could be an interesting little embedded database and and things like that. So pretty cool. It supports many of the MongoDB versions up to 4.2 and 4.4 on the way uh, with wave emoji. I'm not really sure about that, but also supports the... What's that? I think it's sweat, like, Oh, gotcha. Like the work is being done. Gotcha. So you can pip install MontyDB and it will 
work in sort of its way. If you want to use the actual serialization library from MongoDB itself, you can say install MongoDB bracket BSON to install that as well. It also has uh, a lightning memory map DB, LMDB um, library. You can use that as the storage engine as well. So you can pip install, uh, you know, add that on as well. So for the storage, you've got in memory, you've got a flat file. It'll actually use SQLite as a backing store, which is pretty cool. And then that LMDB light, lightning memory mapped DB. So I don't know, this looks pretty neat to me. If you're going to do some kind of embedded thing or you're going to do some testing and you want something lightweight that's not a separate server you've got to set up and run and all those kinds of things, uh, this I, is cool. What I think, think it's awesome. Could you make this a um, PyTest fixture, Brian, that just gives you like preset sets up your database and gives you access to the connection or something? Yeah. I mean, I actually, I don't, I don't, I'm not really a fan of people switching their databases too much for testing because most, most modern databases have uh, in memory options or, or smaller version options. But um, I mean, we use SQLite for tons of stuff. That's not just for testing. And if you've got SQLite at the back end, there's no reason why this couldn't be a production uh, thing then. So, yeah, absolutely. No, this is really cool. I, this could be really useful for like CLI apps that need to store your yes. things. Exactly. You want to have a little thing, but you don't want to say, oh, you want to run my little utility I packaged up with um, Pi2 app or Pi2 EXE or something. Yeah. You're going to need to install MongoDB and become an admin of that. Like, yeah. No, you just you just use like a SQLite file as the backing store or the LMDB version. Another thing that's common from the MongoDB world is there's a set of CLI tools that allows you to manage it. So I can connect to it. I can import a bunch of exported files from some other or backed up files from some other MongoDB instance and import that into my current server or whatever, or create those exports, right? So there's actually a bunch of utilities called Monty Import, Monty Export, Monty Restore, Monty Dump. All of these are the parallels of uh, Mongo, Mongo dump, Mongo restore, and so on. All right. So if, if you were used to working with MongoDB, it's not just explicitly that there's some API to talk to some file. There's also like the tools that are there as well. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I think that could, could be a, a cool project. Uh, I said, why do I make this mostly for just fun and practicing on it, but also need it to uh, run in this limited little rev environments for like render farms in the film industry. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> It's it's a side project also with render farms. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a side project for my supercomputer, yes. <laughs> I love the name, by the way, Monty, Monty Python. I love yeah, that. I mean, yeah, it really brings the MongoDB wordplay in with Monty Python, Python origin, origin. Yeah, pretty cool. All right, Nick, you got the last one? Awesome. Exhaustiveness checking with MyPy. So essentially what uh, exhaustiveness checking is, is a, is a feature of like a lot of type checkers where they guarantee that the programmer has covered all their cases. And so um, with MyPy, you could essentially um, check things like whether you've covered all the, all, like, uh, all like you have written all the if statements you're supposed to write at compile time rather than figuring that out um, at runtime. And I like, I really got into using MyPy and trying to like have it save my, save my butt a lot in the way I think about code by embracing types. So I stumbled across this, which was like really interesting where this article um, written by um, Haki Benita went into how like exhaustiveness checking actually works. So 
they start out with uh, enum that has order status and you have a function that calls that, that is called handle order that takes um, a status which is uh, an instance which should be an instance of order status and so in his uh, a function he has it like if status is order ready you do something if status is order shipped you do something but then he gave this like um added this like new um, like scenario where what if you wanted to check um, the status of something scheduled and so he tried to run my pie right now i didn't complain about it so it was like okay cool yeah because one of the things that's very common is if you have something like a set of cases in this case it's put together in an enumeration yeah you have more cases over time but all these if else if else if else if statements all over your code have you exhaustively gone through and added that case check for all of them? Probably right. not, unless yeah, you've got good not, tests, exactly. like really good tests, yeah. Uh, okay, and so he proposed like one quick way of checking it, that you handled all cases is by adding this assert false comma on handle status, and you pass in the status like using F strings. And so then when you try to pass a state that you have not actually handled before, you actually get assertion error, right? Uh, which is uh, all right, but if you use MyPy, there's this clever trick he um, where you create a function called assert never that uh, takes a value called no return and uh, returns no return, and in it, it has the assert false on handled value. And so then when you um, use that function in your um, handle order function, you, at the end case, you have this else assert never, and you pass in the status. Now, when you check with MyPy, MyPy will know, hey, argument one to assert never has incompatible type, literal order status schedule, expected, no return. Oh. How interesting. Yeah. And this is a compile so, time. And you can actually get this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's the important thing. Cause I was looking at that going, oh, I could just add the else statement and put the assert there and have nothing to do with my pie. And yeah. it would catch that error. But that catches that error when that code runs. Yes. Like I said before, you know, hopefully there's tests, but oftentimes there's not tests for everything. Yeah. And so, especially it's, there might not be a test for the new thing you've added. And so this is cool in that it, it checks all the possible types that could go in there. That's cool. Yeah. And it's the, the part that really uh, got me was that it integrates with your IDE. So PyCharm, VS Code, or any any editor that implements a language server can then like look at this and say, hey, you haven't handled all your cases, right? And you get that immediate feedback rather than having to run your code and then find out, oh, dang it, I missed this case. Right. Yeah. So people who are not looking at the live stream, YouTube stream, which is almost all the people listening, Nick is showing on the screen this assert function that's checking the the numeration. And there's just a red squiggly line that says literally says assert never has incompatible order status that's scheduled. That's the missed enumeration case. I think that's incredible that it actually finds this. Yeah. And it works because um MyPy uses this technique called a type type narrowing and essentially what that means is that it would given a variable as it goes through like a control flow like if statements um, switch statements while loop mypy will like kind of confine or in other words narrow down the types as it goes through those control flow programs and so it works with um enumeration types unions uh, literal, so you like, have 
in the article there are examples of how you could pass in a union of different types, strings, float, and you could still use this technique and it will tell you, hey, you've missed a case. Or you could do this with um, literals. So you have like RGB and then uh, and you only implemented the, you only check for like two cases, which are R and G, and then it will tell you, hey, you did not handle the B case. So yeah, and so like the article goes further into different ways in which you could set this up, um, have my pipe check all of the different cases for you, um, which is really cool. You've even got like the 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 various suites for cards, like yeah. clubs, diamonds, hearts. I know it's interesting that like to my pie when it sees an in enum that uh, has like clubs, diamonds, hearts, and spades, all it sees is like a union of literals which are sweet cards, sweet clubs, sweetheart, which is actually interesting. That's how my pie sees it. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, basically it's emojis. Yeah, it's basically <laughs> emojis, right. Um, the one other thing I wanted to mention here is that oh, there was a specific P. Oh, yeah. This feature is actually uh, something that uh, Guido actually thought was pretty cool. And so I think it's part of uh, PEP622. Uh, structural pattern matching already. So if you are matching against an inu with diff or, or something that has diff um, like multiple different like states, it the, the matching hopefully Python three ten will give you a nice error saying hey you missed a particular uh, case. And this could really and if you are a Django developer or you just use Django or even yeah you just use any ORM and the ORM provides something like choices where like yes, no, or, or dollar, euro, like these kinds of, of choices in the field, this works pretty well. And so in your Django code, you could actually have MyPy telling you, hey, you missed uh, handling a particular case. Crazy. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, which is yeah. really cool. Yeah, see, I'm out in the live stream, I was sort of on to the same thoughts you were talking about with Peter there. Wonder if one could hack on the match mechanism to deliver this functionality at runtime using all the... Uh, by use, uh, using by somehow getting all the variants of the enum and checking the branches, the AST or something. Yeah, that's, that's actually interesting because I know that um, part of the structural pattern matching it come like any object can implement the the magic method uh, match, and maybe that is your gate, like that's your entry point into providing that kind of um, checking at runtime. Of course, hmm. with Python, anything that in, um, come there's around runtime checking. There's like performance costs with that, so be careful. Yeah, but I, yeah. if having this built into MyPy already would be good. And yeah. uh, Jurgen is talking about on the live stream. Says, I wonder whether you could rewrite the code to not use if statements at all, but mm -hmm. uh, be more polymorphic, which I agree. That's a really interesting idea uh, with the method overloading and stuff. And it Reminds me back uh, a couple of weeks ago, Brian talked about function overloading with single dispatch and multiple dispatch. And yeah, you could kind of more or less make that happen there. So yeah, pretty neat. Although and, you still may miss a case. I'm not entirely sure. I, I, at least in the enumeration bit, that won't help you, right? Because the enum will still be the same type. It'll just have yeah. more values. Yeah. Awesome. Good one, Nick. Brian, what else we got? Um, well, I've got a couple things. One of the things I wanted to note was that uh, uh, this is the second week in a row we've uh, featured an article by Hacky and or Hockey and the third in this year, so we should probably try to get him on the show or something. So yeah, absolutely. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds good. He's doing some good writing, so thanks. Um, 
the other thing I wanted to mention is um is I've got uh oh yeah by the way my book is out um <laughs> this is the book too yeah second edition PyTest uh, is available for beta so people can um uh, tell me everything that's I already got it somebody said they have got an issue it's a minor issue um with the already so thanks uh, but it, it's just been me and my editor so far working through it so having more people more eyes before we go to go to shipping the physical book would be great so of course this is um through prag- pragmatic but if you go to pytestbook.com it'll take you there so that was my extra right on cool i've got a you? couple as well yeah i got some neat ones here so how often do you maybe have like a blueprint floor plan maybe you're looking at a house and you're trying to decide whether you want to buy it what would it be like to actually live in there uh, maybe you're trying to figure out, well, I'm planning out this apartment or I have this place. I want to remodel it, like Ikea it all out or something along those lines. I ran across this thing that uses some interesting um, models called plan to scene. So the idea is it'll take what is literally a floor plan, like a blueprint floor plan that shows like swinging doors and bits. And then you you tell it what kind of room it is. It's like a bedroom or a bathroom or whatever. And it will generate a 3D world that has things like sinks and toilets and couches that are three-dimensional, not just somehow projected in there. So there's all of these interesting things you can see. There's like, if you pull up the site, there's all these like spinning worlds and you can see that they've created these little environments just from floor plans, which I think Mm. is pretty insane. So anyway, you can go ahead, Nick. No, that's really cool. I think I wonder if like, because like Trimble, we um, we own like SketchUp. I wonder if they do this kind of stuff. They they take floor plans and then they make it 3D. That's really cool. Yeah, it's uh, there's a whole bunch of comparisons of how it used to be done. How you can pick like different uh, you know different flooring and walls and source codes available on GitHub. People can run with that. So that's pretty cool. It's called Plan to Scene. And then just a quick shout out to this. TCAST podcast. I happened to be a guest of recently, and we got to talk about Python and data science and how Python and data are sort of changing the world and stuff. And it's really fun. So people can check that out. Yeah. And that's it for the things I got. Nick, anything else you want to throw out there? Yeah. Just a shameless plug. As I said earlier um, on the live stream, I co host the CLEPI, um, which is Cleveland's area um, Python uh, meetup group. And so we have meetups. Um, every second Monday of the month. And one of the reasons why I would encourage anybody across the world or uh, US or everywhere to still come and present is because oftentimes it, um, meetups are a great place to present talks that you are planning on giving and maybe like um, um, continent, continental like conferences or like other larger conferences, you know, smaller crowd and, you know, you're we show you guys a good time, right? So it's a great place to come, give your talk, get feedback from that, and then, you know, take any and improve on it. So that's one. And then the other uh, shameless blog is that PyOhio ha- uh, it has its own uh, conference coming up on July uh, 31st. Registrations are open. We have pretty cool t-shirts. So yeah, register. And that's yeah. a... Is that live or uh, streaming? Yes, that is being streamed. Okay. How about your meetups? Yeah. Are those being um, are those streamed or live? Those are virtual. We we used to okay. have them like in person, and that's I really that's when like pandemic really messed things up because you have 
just have like pizza over and just have a good time talking about Python. But no, the virtual um, setting has given a lot more people access and you know, we're able to have yeah. more people on. So nice. Yeah, that's fantastic. And Pi Ohio is definitely one of those big regional conferences that a lot of people pay attention to, even if they're not in Ohio. Definitely. Are you going to go back to in-person only? Or are you going to do like a hybrid stream and in-person or is it going to be, that's a good what's question. your plans for when the world returns to normal? That's if it ever returns to normal. Uh, I think we'll change forever. <laughs> but to answer your question, I think my uh, co-organizer and I have been thinking about this. We don't, we're not yet set yet. Like we see the benefits of the virtual, but we also see the benefits of the live. And there are things that have changed so much. We don't even know whether the live uh, yeah. person is still available, but no, just something we're thinking about. So, yeah, cool. Well, uh, it's a challenge. I think all the meetups and other events are having, yeah. especially these smaller, like monthly, biweekly sort of things. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to say that there's going to be a big conference and we'll all either go to it or, or not, but you're doing it every couple of weeks and it's mostly local, but not hundred percent local. Yeah. It's a challenge. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, Brian, you ready for a joke? Definitely. Okay. So I've, I've got one and then Nick has one. So this one, the title of the joke is root beer float. Okay. So Good. a programmer walks into a bar. He orders 1.0000011119 root beers. The bartender says, I'm going to have to charge you extra. That's a root beer float. The programmer says, well, in that case, make it a double. <laughs> it's bad, right? That's that's bad. Yeah. All right. And Nick, you've got one as well. You want to do this one for us? Uh, yeah. Do you, would someone like to join? You, you want me to be, want me to be the bearded person? Yeah, I already have something <laughs> going on there anyway. So, All right. So, so will refactoring the code improve the loading time? Uh, not really. Will it improve the security then? No. So it's for browser compatibility? Yeah, no, not really. Nope. So tell me, why is it always the same old story with you guys wanting to refactor everything? I need to know. Because as devs, if we know, <clears throat> excuse me, we, if we know we've left behind some messy code, we can't stop thinking about it. When we wake up in the morning, at lunchtime, in the evening, when we go home, and when we're trying to go to sleep, it haunts us, you know. It haunts <laughs> us. <laughs> I love it. And it's true, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, yeah. totally true it's totally true all right i have one more joke for you guys oh yeah okay. hit us all right um how much does a chimney cost <laughs> no idea nothing it's on the house <laughs> very good that's i have a friend that is so so into dad jokes which is weird because it's only 22 so <laughs> he, he practicing Practicing I, for know, the future. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think dads can be blamed for all bad jokes. In the world. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I want to highlight uh, uh, Jurgen uh, says that they cost twenty five hundred euros. That's expensive. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for uh, joining us today. Uh, this was a lot of fun, and uh, thanks everybody in the stream for showing up. And uh, we'll talk to everybody next yeah. week. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye.